If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Today we're exploring the role of morality within the current COVID-19 pandemic. When it comes to making risk-reducing decisions, how does one strive for ethical and responsible outcomes? And how do we make any choice if saving one group of vulnerable people has a disastrous impact on another? To help us explore the ethics of the pandemic, we are joined by moral philosopher Susan Naiman, analytical philosopher Patricia Churchland, and conservative journalist Peter Hitchens. So to put it in a very highly simplified way, and I'm sure, you know, I'll get beaten up for this. It's as though bonding begets caring and caring begets morality. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Hannah Dawson. Well, I now am going to open um, this debate up and ask each speaker to give us their thoughts um, on the debate, and in particular to ask their views on the question, is morality inherently selfish? So I'll begin, if I may, with you, Susan. Morality is exactly what we need when other things clash with our self-interest. Um, morality is exactly what, we, you know, self-interest uh, is, is relatively simple. You have to do some instrumental reasoning sometime to figure out what's in your self-interest and, and uh, you know, the best way to go about getting uh, the shortest means to the ends that you want. But that's not a serious or philosophical problem. Philosophical problems arise when something that's in your self-interest isn't in someone else's uh, and it, you, you need to weigh things. I mean, the basic answer to the question is morality um, ultimately selfish is no. But what I've been thinking about since the pandemic started is actually that the entire very long discussion about self-interest and the common good is actually being undermined in a quite promising and beautiful way. Uh, and one example, of course, is just the, the, what we're all being told about wearing masks. We're wearing masks not to protect ourselves, but to protect other people. And if they wear masks, it will protect us. I mean, that's just a rock bottom level and a, perhaps a paradigm, but also what you mentioned at the beginning, 
our realization uh, that not only are grocery store workers and trash collectors and you know uh, nurses um, the most vulnerable and usually the worst paid, they're also the most important. All of us who get to stay at home and work online and jabber in conversations like this or file our stories are non-essential. The world will go on turning without us. And I think there's been enough consciousness of that and discussion of that all over the world that people are beginning to ask, um, it is not an act of generosity to make sure that those people who keep, the, who keep our worlds going um, are given the same kinds of, or better, uh, working conditions, pay, status, and respect than they have hitherto received because the world will not go on turning if it doesn't happen that way. Thank you very much. Patricia, can I ask you to answer the same question? Well, I'll give it a shot. Um, and I'm going to come at it from a rather different direction. I'm going to start with the question that Darwin asked in The Descent of Man in 1871. And Darwin knew very well, of course, that mammals and birds generally are intensely social. So Darwin said, where does our moral sense or our conscience come from? And he suggested that it had three components. One is instinct, one is learning, and the third is what we might call problem solving or reasoning. Now, by and large, evolutionary biologists have been disinclined to think that instinct could be any part of the story because they think, well, gee, you know, if some person had the instinct to be altruistic, then the other guys would take advantage of him, he wouldn't be able to reproduce, and it would be wiped out. But it turns out that there is an interesting story about why mammals and birds are social in the way that they are. So about 200 million years ago, warm-blooded animals appeared on the planet. Now this was a tremendous ecological advantage because they could forage at night and they could forage in cooler places. But it came with a huge cost. Gram for gram, a warm-blooded animal has to eat 10 times as much. So in order to accommodate that, those animals warm-blooded were favored if they were smart and the smarter the better. Now there's really two ways to get smart. One is to build it all in the genes but that's an extremely long and slow process. The other way is to learn and the bigger the learning the smarter you are. And so what really happened then was that big learning took place. But the downside, the cost of big learning is because the brain has to build structure every time you learn anything. Infants have to be born very immature. And that means they are very vulnerable. So those animals were favored where the parents, or in particular the mother, formed strong bonds to the infant and cared for the infant as though it was an extension of herself, that uh, she took care of its food, its warmth, and its safety. Now, it wasn't because it was fun, it was because she was wired to do this. 
And we now know something about the neurochemicals that are involved in that. And they have to do with oxytocin and the chem neurochemicals that make you feel really good, the endocannabinoids. Now, as species traveled the planet and found additional niches, different manners and ways of being social emerged. Some animals found it very convenient to live in fairly large groups. Some animals found that pair bond, long-term pair bonding was uh, an ecological advantage. Others didn't have pair bonding, but there was bonding between kin, bonding between friends, and so forth. So if I can put it in a very simple way, but first I should make one clarification. By a moral decision here, I'm going to mean a decision in which I incur a cost in order to benefit another. So um, in the case of, of many social animals, what we see is that there is significant caring for others. It's as though, to put it in a very highly simplified way, and I'm sure, you know, I'll get beaten up for this. It's as though bonding begets caring and caring begets morality. And we see aspects of uh, caring for others in the, all of the intensely social animals, such as wolves, elephants, baboons, and certainly also in humans. Now, the learning part of what Darwin picked up on involves the reward system. So very early on, the infants learn how to navigate their social world, but their reward system is deeply involved so that when they uh, produce a behavior that is rewarded, they feel good, they get a dopamine hit. When they produce behavior for which they are scolded, uh, they get a serotonin hit, to put it simply. And so it does mean, and, 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 and I know some Kantians think that this is horrifying, it does mean that we often take real pleasure in doing the right thing, in doing the good thing. We derive satisfaction and joy and pleasure from uh, doing that. We also know that if you are a social animal and you behave in these socially caring ways, that it's good not only for your mental health, it's also very good for your physical health. It doesn't precisely imply anything about policy. For that, I think we have to figure out things in the way we always have. We have to come together, compromise, make decisions, do the best we can. And by and large, with the exception of psychopaths, people tend to want to do that. That they, are, they have common sense, basically they are decent, and when there is an emergency, people respond very well. They do respond in different ways because we are different from one another. And that reflects our cultural background, but it also reflects certain deep, innate characterological features, such as whether we are very inclined to be rule-bound or whether we are inclined uh, to uh, be rule-breakers. And there's really important data about that. Um, but this is just by way of saying that the mix is very complex. 
And there is no simple rule that tells us what the right thing to do is. Okay, thank you very much. And now finally I turn to, um, to Peter. Uh, morality seems to me to be tested most of all in the overcoming of fear. Fear of loss, fear of pain, fear of death. Uh, the, simple, uh, the simple summary of morality in the scriptures, uh, the, the greater love hath no man than this, and that he lay down his life for his friends, seems to me to be the simplest definition of it. Out, and from that, all other forms of moral action can be traced. Uh, many of them lesser than the laying down of life for a friend, but nonetheless having the same characteristic, that we lose something which we fear to lose, which we've always feared to lose, which we don't want to lose, and yet we do it. And so how do we as fundamentally selfish creatures ever perform such moral acts, which many of us don't? And the, one of the most famous definitions of morality is what we do when we think nobody's looking. Uh, and I think that is absolutely true. A lot of us will behave a good deal better when we have an audience than when we're on our own in some scene of terrible chaos. And I think all of us will admit at some point or other to have behaved in, in shockingly immoral ways when we thought nobody was looking. So the, the real trick of a moral system must be to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And I think the, the clever way in which the, the religious morality to which I subscribe, which is a very old-fashioned one, uh, does so, is through assuming that there is justice in the universe and that therefore those things which we do which are morally right will be rewarded and those things which we do will, which are morally wrong will ultimately be punished, which appeals to the selfishness in all of us and makes moral people out of immoral people. So yeah, I think it's probably true that ultimately the, the, either the, the fear, of, fear of punishment or the hope of reward drives an awful lot of moral actions and therefore they could be considered, if you were being ruthless, selfish. But of course, often in their appearance and in their performance, they aren't selfish. Uh, the, the whole idea of the universe which has led to them does appeal to the selfishness in, in humanity. So yeah, I suppose a, 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 a reasonable answer to the question would be yes. Thank you very much. Now um, we're going to get into uh, some of the detail um, of this question and try to bring that abstract question about morality um, to bear on the pandemic. Um, and I want to begin by asking you all to think about how we can make decisions about who to prioritize during the pandemic. Is it not the case that human lives are equal to each other? In which case it's very hard to know how to find a way forward uh, in our current crisis. Susan, um, I'll start with you. Well, I, I, I just, I, I had a very short remark to Patricia Churchland, which is that if, um, uh, there are Kantians who really believe it's a bad thing that people feel good when they act morally. They're very bad Kantians because Kant himself made it clear that he thought people should be glad uh, and happy when they're acting morally. But I, I had a more substantive question for Peter Hitchens. Um, I wonder if that's what you believe, how you explain the fact that many people who don't believe in a theodicy, that is an afterlife in which uh, evil actions are punished and good actions are rewarded, why do they sometimes behave morally? Well, who's to say they behave morally if they're not abiding by a, a known moral system, then why is what they do moral or not? I tend to think it's because of the afterglow in our society of Christian morality, which continues to 
to infuse life, literature, art, architecture, music, everything you care to name, uh, but is no longer subscribed to in, in its fundaments by most people. And it will continue to survive for a long time in our culture. People will think they know what is right while rejecting the basis of that, of that rightness. There's nothing particularly surprising about that. If you don't mind, I would like to actually say something as well. The, the point maybe that, that Susan Neiman was trying to make uh, with regard to Peter's observation could be put a slightly different way. And that is that there's a lot of Buddhists in the world. There are a lot of Confucians in the world. And it turns out that none of them believe in a divine lawgiver. They do believe in all kinds of things, but they don't believe that there is a divine lawgiver. And by and large, this is true of so-called folk religions. For example, if I may take the Inuit, um, as studied by Franz Boas and, and by other anthropologists, they did not believe in a divine lawgiver. They did have various social practices which were certainly moral in their basis. They were kind and generous and decent and, and so forth. They had a system of punishing the miscreants when that was necessary. And yet, I mean, they did believe in the spirit of the narwhal and the spirit of the polar bear and all kinds of things of that sort. Um, but they were very good and decent people, even though they did not believe in a Christian God. Now, that's not to, you know, to downplay the morality of Christianity. There's much to be said there. But the only point is, and here Darwin was spot on, he did not think that the origin of morality is in religion, but in the basic wiring of the brain that is owed to the genes. And he is surely right about that. But it leaves open the question of policy, what we should do, what we shouldn't do in specific situations so that the answer to the origin of our moral sense or conscience doesn't tell us how we should behave in this pandemic. Those things we're, are all open. But by the way, Christianity does not tell us. If I can just add, within the Christian Jewish, Jewish Christian tradition, we have known at least since the book of Job that virtue doesn't guarantee happiness, uh, you know, in this or any other world. And so it, it just seems odd to think that the reason why uh, we uh, behave morally even within uh, Western monotheistic tradition is that God is going to reward us one way or the other because um, that has been a problem since the earliest book of the Bible. Well, the book of Job is a parable. It's not, uh, there was no such person. But the... Uh, I, I know that. But in, in any case... In any case... No one's being... <laughs> No one's being no one's being offered happiness. They're being offered justice. They oh, may really? they may no. they may not be <laughs> the same thing. Universe is being I can either say it or I can't. The universe is 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 being offered as one which contains and is motivated by justice. I still can't uh, get you around <laughs> the point of defining things as morally good and kind and so forth that you approve of. Uh, although you don't actually have any any uh, objective register by which to define them as such. 
And unless you, unless you search uh, in uh, scriptures for definitions of what is good and what is bad, then you're left basically like somebody who's been tumbled over and over in an avalanche and lies curled up in, 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 in the middle of hundreds of tons of snow, doesn't know which way up he is. Uh, and, and nobody does. That's true at the Buddhists, that they don't know which way is up. The declaration that such and such a thing is good or right uh, is, 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 is purely subjective and has, and has no force. So it, I, it, it, I, don't, I don't really want to have the ancient religious argument here, but since, you know, since this has been said, I have to give the standard response to it. No, church in school, it's very clear. And of course, it, we're talking about parables, but those parables are scripture. Even if you look in scripture, either in the book of Job, in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, I've written quite a lot about this in my book, Moral Clarity. Um, it is not the case that we have a prescribed morality or justice in the universe. That's where religion begins. But, okay, Hannah wants us to get to another... I would like to move the discussion on from this, this general discussion of morality that you're having, which is fascinating, but to try to help us think about how we might, as it were, weigh up um, different priorities um, of different lives um, in a pandemic. So it seems like you've all got different accounts of where morality comes from, but none of you have yet um, answered the question as to whether you think that every human life is equally valuable um, and, and how that bears on the very hard decisions we're having to make um, at the moment. I mean, one classic one, um, as we all know, is this, this sort of supposed trade-off between the lives of the most vulnerable and the livelihoods of all understood very broadly as the economy. How are we to, to think about that trade-off? in moral terms, if it's the case that human beings are equal. Um, Susan, do you want to answer that first? Yeah, very briefly. What bothered me about the way that the question was posed is that it accepted the boundaries of the current economic and political constellation in the world. Because if you accept that, then those are real questions. For me, the elephant in the room is the arms industry. And uh, Malala, of course, who re, you know, got to be world famous by becoming the youngest Nobel laureate uh, for risking her life for girls' education, um, she became very famous. People didn't pay attention to what she did after uh, she got that education. She gave a, a speech which really went under the radar in which she argued that we could give every child on the planet 12 years of a good education on the profits that the arms industry uh, makes in guess, guess, eight days. Okay? It's an astonishing quote. And I asked Amartya Sen, actually, um, uh, Nobel laureate in economics, if the figure, if the numbers were right, and he sort of scribbled some numbers on the pad and said, yes, absolutely. Um, this is an extraordinary statement because we don't even know how we could put that information into political practice. No one is willing to take on the arms industry. You've talked to politicians about it, and they look 
as if this is a utopian idea that one might actually use, um, I, God, I don't even have the numbers of the entire, um, I looked it up. Uh, it just, it's an unimaginably large amount of money that is being made by what that great old socialist radical Dwight Eisenhower called the uh, military industrial complex in his last speech some 60 years ago. Um, you know, if we were willing to take that on, the kinds of trade-offs that you're talking about um, wouldn't be necessary. And my very hopeful plea, um, it's not a prophecy by any means, everything could get much, much worse. But my plea is the pandemic gives us a possibility for rethinking an awful lot of things. And that is the one that I would put first. Thank you. Peter, there's no need for trade-offs. Everyone can be helped equally. Well, there is no trade-off. This is the most fundamental point about this event, which we're, which we're talking about. If you destroy, uh, by deliberately strangling, the economy of an advanced industrial nation, you do immense damage to life and health. Uh, this is a point made from the beginning of this episode by Professor Sushrit Bhakti of the University of Mainz, who pointed out again and again that if, if we embarked on the policy which we were embarking on, then particularly to begin with, the healthy old, uh, deprived of their of, of their normal lives, and then everybody else deprived of, uh, of, of the ability to, to have medical appointments or treatment, uh, and then deprived by a declining economy of the means of life and health, would suffer immensely from what is being done. There is no trade-off between what is being done and, uh, and, 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 and life and health. It is life versus life. And I would personally argue the, the policy being being adopted by many Western governments at the moment is one absolutely destructive of life. And the idea that being in favor of a healthy economy is in some way some kind of greedy capitalist desire for money is so nonsensical. I, I am an ex-Trotskyist, for goodness sake, and even when I was a Trotskyist, I never advanced anything so ridiculous. We knew perfectly well that the economy was the basis of any decision. If you didn't have an economy, you couldn't have a state or a society. And the people who are now arguing that this is irrelevant to people who are, who are, who are, who are children in the, in, in the whole question of political economy and don't understand the basis of society or how it operates. How the people who go out nightly, or go out weekly and, and, and applaud the British National Health Service, I believe similar things happen in most European countries, how they think that those health services will survive in a country which has undergone a huge reduction in its gross domestic products, enormous unemployment and a crashing of its tax base, I simply don't know. Uh, there is a great deal of morality in keeping an economy healthy, and the current the current actions of many Western governments are deeply immoral in that they are they're doing gross, permanent, long term damage to the economy, which will harm people. So I don't see that there's any trade off at all in what we're discussing. Would either of you like to come back on that? Oh, I guess I might like to say something. Please do. Um, yeah, I think. One of the observations, I mean, I'm not an economist, so I don't really say this with tremendous confidence, but one of the observations that is made is that, um, that the economy will suffer if we do not do anything with regard to the pandemic. That is, if we just let, uh, let it run its course, so to speak. 
And so, I mean, I do think that the politicians are in a very, very difficult position because there are some things we know about this virus, but many, many things that we don't. But at the very beginning, what we do know is that it's novel. And we know that it's highly contagious and that it's variable in its effects on people. And it isn't just the old <laughs> who, who succumb. And, and so in the early stages, I think it's not unreasonable to respond to a pandemic the way that people always have, and that is with isolation, separate, separate. It always has had economic consequences, and what you want to do is to minimize those as much as you possibly can. Now, I don't understand the, the British situation as well as I understand the American one, but things here... No! <laughs> okay. Things here could have been done so much better. We knew. Bill Gates told Trump. Uh, Obama told us all that we should have the preparations in place for a pandemic. And unfortunately, the leadership um, has not really taken the science seriously. But, and here I think is a deep moral problem. The leadership lies to us. Now, I don't know if that's true in Britain, but Trump said, eh, you know, we're, we've got complete control of this. This was in January, God help us. And then he said, no, it, it, it was like a miracle. It will go away. We're not going to be hurt by this, and so forth. And even now, as you the, the data that we have are available in the newspapers, not, of course, from the CDC or from the government, um, the data indicate that in many places, the numbers are going up, the numbers of cases and numbers of deaths. And there's our president saying, numbers are all going down. So, I mean... I can hardly think of a worse moral action, a more cretinous moral action than being a leader and systematically lying to your people. That has hurt the economy in all kinds of unimaginably stupid and avoidable ways. Nobody is as stupid as Peter Hitchens thinks when he says, oh, the people who say the economy doesn't matter. I know nobody who says that. Um, so yeah, okay, I mean, you know, beat up a straw man, that's always real fun. I enjoy that a bit myself from time to time. Uh, but nobody says that. We all know the economy. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, I spend a lot of time arguing with them. Yeah, I'm no, I'm sure you have a great fun time arguing with them, and I'm sure they're very, very few in number. Well, let, 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 us, let us hope so, but a, a huge amount of the argument, I've been arguing this matter now for seven weeks solid, a huge well, amount. I expect you're wasting your time. A huge that amount of the argument that, that, that I have is with people who say uh, that to, to argue that the economy should be preserved is to argue selfishly, to argue for money, to I argue think for business. It, well. everyone I get it all the time. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. 
Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper. Get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Yeah, except that I think that in this room, in this Zoom room of ours, um, everyone agrees that um, the economy has huge, economy is inextricably linked to um, to human life and to morality, of course. Sorry, Susan, did you want to come back on that? Yeah, I I have a question that's been uh, troubling me about, you know, as I watch um, people with guns, Confederate flags and swastikas in the United States, uh, egged on by the man in the White House, who I still have trouble uh, referring to as the president. Um, at, you know, as I watch that, but we're also seeing some of that in Berlin, where I live, not to that degree by any means, but the right-wing party is the one that's insisting on, uh, uh, you know, that the restrictions are too harsh. I agree very much with Patricia. Nobody that I know seriously denies the importance of keeping the economy going for everything else that we care about. But what I find strange is that the people who emphasize one or another really do seem to fall on the left-right split, even though I think most people (laughs) are, you know, sensibly in the middle about the importance of both. And I'm just wondering what motivates that. It's it's very odd. It's very international. You see that with Bolsonaro. I mean, you know, this um, left-right, if you're if you're on the right, you want to minimize the importance of transmission and testing and, you know, being extremely cautious. And it's, it's puzzling me. I wonder if anyone can make a connection. Peter, I'm not saying that everybody who believes in the, the economy is important is a, you know, dirty, selfish capitalist who ought to be hauled off and shot. That's not what I'm saying. So I know you're not saying it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting for a moment that you are. Okay, I just don't want to be mistaken for a straw woman here, but I, I am struck by the degree to which this is an issue on the right. I have no idea. I don't regard myself as being on the right or the left, and haven't for a long time, uh, but it does seem to me that the, the measures being taken by my own government and that of several other major countries uh, to deliberately close down uh, their economies, uh, to commit themselves to the borrowing of enormous, legendary sums of money, unrepayable, greater even than were borrowed for, during the Second World War, and which took, in the case of my country, something in the region of 45 years to repay. Uh, the, the people who are doing this voluntarily on the basis of a questionable policy uh, seem to me to have a very, very heavy responsibility on them if they've made a mistake. And it's not just that the economy is being restrained or slowed down or in some small way uh, made to suffer a little bit. This is a man-made catastrophe. And the, the level of it is, is unthinkable in, term, in, in, in any terms known to economic historians. Nothing like this has happened in Britain for 300 years. And the, the, the advances that have taken place in the economy and in wealth and in gross domestic product and per capita and all the things on which our, 
our current rather comfortable lives rely uh, are, are, have been huge in those past 300 years. And you cannot, with the modern 21st century economy, just shut it down. You know, that's what's going on. And the colossal nature of this, of this policy, and in my view, mistake, is simply not understood by a population largely uneducated in economics. And they then say to people who say, such as I have said from the start, if you, you, you really mustn't destroy the economy, oh, you only care about money then. You don't care about lives. And it's a falsehood. Uh, and and I, I promise you that if you engage in this argument, and I have been engaging in it with all my strength since it began, because I think it's a mistake and it's my duty to oppose it, that is what you get. And please don't tell me that you don't, because I know round about 18 or 19 hours of, of every day of my life since this began has been spent in arguing as far as I possibly can with courtesy, reason and facts against these people. And this is the constant refrain of my opponents. You only care about money. You don't care about life all the time, over and over and over again. So, don't tell me it doesn't happen because it does. So can I ask a question then? So... On your assumption that you don't want to close down the economy at all, how, how do you, what would your policy be um, with regard to the pandemic? Like, what, what do you recommend? Let's assume that, that you don't close down the economy at all. What, what then? I mean, just life goes on as normal? Or, I mean, well, what happens in your... My, my, my own personal belief is that it's, uh, it's utopian and hubristic for governments to imagine that they can control the spread of viruses, much as if they imagine they can control the tides or the weather. Uh, we simply don't have the ability to do it. But I'm prepared to accept that I might be wrong on that. And therefore, I would, I would accept the arguments of those such as the government of Sweden, which have said, yes, we must take rational measures uh, of social distancing and, uh, and, and in general of, of, of increased hygiene, but we do not need to close down life and, uh, and the economy of our country. I would also actually take the view of, uh, of countries such as uh, Japan and Taiwan, which have also managed to control or contain this thing, if they have, uh, by not taking such shutdown actions and will emerge from it. Uh, economically, politically, and socially much stronger than those countries which have trashed their economies. So I have plenty of alternatives. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't really matter because I am about as far from the levers of power as I am from the South Pole. So it, it, it's not a huge issue for me wor worrying in detail about policy, but there are alternatives which have been pursued. They don't get much publicity, except that Sweden is constantly portrayed in a hostile fashion uh, by my colleagues in the media who, by and large, have taken the conventional wisdom position that the current policies are wise and therefore that Sweden has done something incredibly rash. In fact, Sweden's position is a rational one. I'm puzzled by the claim that the government can control uh, the spread of a virus as little as it can control the tides when we wiped out smallpox. We have killed, you know. Smallpox uh, is not a virus. We have. I but I think that the point that's being made here, Peter, is that. Um, but while, of course, there is, as it were, a natural component 
component to the spread of this virus, policy makes a huge difference in the way that it is spread through a society. So there are countries with radically lower death rates than, for example, the UK. And in large part, that is a function, the thought is, of their failure to protect the people at the front line, their failure, for example, to provide them with personal personal protective equipment. I mean, that's a way to stop the virus. Give them PPE. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that doesn't stop anything. And also, your, your well, assertion... Well, it's not getting... I have to say, I don't accept your assertion that government action can be shown to have made any difference. You can look at every country in which the virus has been present, and you can find no pattern of congruence between the actions taken by government and, oh, the, result, and, and, and the and the uh, and the levels of deaths in those countries, there is no such pattern. It cannot be demonstrated. Not. What is more, uh, there is strong evidence uh, recently c collected against his will by Governor Cuomo of New York State uh, that the in, among hospital admissions for for people since he instituted his shutdown of that state, among hospital admissions for, for, for people for coronavirus, which means quite serious cases, 66% of those admitted had been observing uh, the instruction to stay at home. So it, it seems to me that we have a problem here which doesn't actually uh, turn out to be as simple as we thought. And half my argument has been from the start, if you look at every country that is involved, rather than selecting a few, you cannot find a pattern even of correlation, let alone of causation, which suggests that any particular government action has been effective in controlling the spread of the virus, particularly in, in the, the only objective measure which we really have of its spread, which is the number of deaths it's caused. I, I just have to dispute that. I mean, compare, Go ahead. compare what's happened in um, England and Ireland, for example. Yes. Very clear. I know that one is a big country and the other is a small country, but Ireland acted extremely quickly, um, extremely clearly, and they've kept the spread of the virus as well as the number of fatalities to a tiny amount of what England, with very confusing directions from the government, have done. I, I, I just, I can think. You, can you give me? Can you give me deaths per million figures for that? Oh, come on. Uh, no, I, this, this is the, the assertions being yes, made. Yes, we will. My understanding is that, is that the deaths per, per million in, in Ireland are very similar to those in Sweden. Um, okay, I don't have those numbers with well, me. Well, in that case, it, it seems to me that the assertion should not be made unless you do. And it's a very, well, it's, I, it's a very, major, it's a very major assertion. Yeah, the major... I'm saying, I'm saying I don't know. You're saying you do. If you, if you say you do, you have to come up with, with evidence for what you say. Okay. Uh, you made the assertion that smallpox is not a virus. Is that, is that your view? Well, is, is, is it a virus? <laughs> yes. You don't know that, and yet you well, feel I'm, comfortable well, going on well, about well, uh, uh, a biological phenomenon about which you obviously know nothing. Does smallpox reappear? In different forms every year. No, it doesn't. No. You know how no. it was eradicated? I mean, the, the the ignorance here is absolutely stunning. What 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 is what is the ignorance? You don't know what smallpox is. You don't well, know what the I immune was rejected against, how I was, in, it was eradicated. I was rejected against smallpox at the age of about two or three. I know that about it. Smallpox is a virus, and it has been eradicated through vaccines. And what a vaccine does is creates antibodies in a person that attack the pathogen, in this case, the smallpox virus, 
so that eventually, if everybody is immune to it, the smallpox virus ceases to have a life. You ought to know that if you're going to if you're going well, to make I, a very strong here's, point. Here's your point. Okay. It, it's 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 been eradicated through through um, a a. Um, a vaccination originated by Jenner several hundred years ago. Yeah, out of cowpox, and because it was the same thing, and it's been it's been eradicated. Viruses okay, change. Viruses change every year. Are you telling me? Are you telling me that smallpox is the same as coronavirus? No, of course not. And viruses come in many different forms and in many different varieties. And a coronavirus is called that because it has these very particular proteins on, on its extremities. Other viruses behave in very different ways. Ebola is a virus, you might be interested to know. Well, I might be interested to know, yes. Yeah, you might. And it can help you, I think, kind of understand how we deal with pandemics and why vaccines work. But not every virus mutates in the way that certain influenza viruses mutate. And those influenza viruses that mutate every year are really very different from coronavirus, from smallpox. So it's actually helpful to know the science, uh, you know, especially before yeah, sure. you start off. And the facts. I raised the uh, smallpox claim uh, as part of a general claim because I was quite struck by Peter's claim that the government can no more change, protect us Absolutely. Absolutely wrong. Well, it's, it's, okay, so, all right, so here I am, here I am, I admit. Peter, Peter, I, Peter, no, no, here, what, here, wait a minute, I, 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 I have made a mistake. Yes, so yeah, The point remains the same. Smallpox, small, smallpox, smallpox took hundreds of years to eradicate. The point does not remain the same because the general... It is not, and I think everybody here will, 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 will accept. The smallpox is not comparable to coronavirus. It doesn't mean we can't get a vaccine. I didn't say you couldn't get a vaccine. I'm saying that you, you, can't, you can't simply control it uh, in, in, in the way that, the, that you can simply say, right, the government is, is attacking this, this disease and it will therefore stop it. Hundreds of years, hundreds of years between 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 Jenner and the eradication of smallpox. I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, I've got no idea. I'm afraid. I'm afraid the difficulty with Zoom is that um, only one person can be heard at any one time. Susan, so that's why I'd like now to ask you to respond to Peter, and then after that, um, I'm going to come to you for some closing thoughts. Um, so, Susan, would you like now to respond? Yes, the reason that I brought up the smallpox example was not to get lost in a question of viruses versus bacteria. It actually answered the question that I originally, Peter Marks answered the question I originally posed, which is why is it that conservatives seem to be always fall on the side of the economy über alles? And I think the reason is that you have, whether or not it's conscious, a belief that government policy can't really change anything much any more than it can change the tides. When we have seen for hundreds of years how many diseases that used to be fatal were wiped out by the progress of simple things like penicillin. Now, um, it occurred to me once uh, that all three of my children would have died by the age of five 
yeah. for simple diseases, you know, that in the 19th century, people uh, died from all the time, Darwin's daughter, but uh, we all know those stories. Um, so we do make some progress. And there were plague after plagues in earlier ages. We're all a bit thrown by this because there had been so much progress, both in medicine and in hygiene, that we've never experienced for a hundred years anything of this magnitude. But the idea somehow that government cannot create conditions that make the world better is a deeply problematic conservative idea. That's all I'd like to say. Well, that's a straw man. We're coming to the end of time, so <laughs> in all sorts of ways, particularly and generally, perhaps. Um, but um, I, I therefore would like to ask you all um, to kind of sum up and to answer the hard uh, question, um, which is to imagine you know, ourselves in six months or a year from now and to imagine how history um, will judge what we're doing right now. Um, Patricia, would you like to begin? Well, I don't know that, that I have much that's insightful to say on that. I, I think that the leaders of the various nations have had a very difficult problem to address. Um, they haven't always known how because there is so much that is unknown about the nature of the virus. And uh, they stumble along and then sometimes they manage to correct themselves and go on a slightly different course. And I, I should just say that I think in the U.S., um, some of the Republican governors have been wonderful, especially, for example, uh, Jim Devine of Ohio, who has managed things extremely well, has always been truthful, has allowed the scientists to speak, has not sort of thrown them out of the room and shut them down. Um, I think others who are, are in our economy, like Bill Gates, have been tremendously important, again, in speaking the truth. Um, but also in realizing that if you just let everything go, that that will hurt the economy also. Um, Meatpacker uh, workers are, are dying of, of coronavirus. So, so the other thing that Bill Gates admirably is doing is funding projects both for testing and for a vaccine. And when those things come online, uh, we will be able to defeat this. But the real program for big testing, a sort of a, what people call the Manhattan Project for testing, should have been handled by the federal government. But there was Trump saying, yeah, anybody who wants a test can get a test. Not true. Just not true. And it is still not true when he said that... Um, Two and a half months ago, it wasn't true, it's still not true. But at least Bill Gates and some other individuals and in some states are really taking hold. And that gives, me, uh, that gives me a lot of courage. But the government should have been doing it, could have done it. Thank you, Patricia. Peter. Well, I think that when we see the enormous price of this, uh, six months, a year hence, uh, when the economies of several major countries, already in grave difficulties before this began, are uh, on their knees 
uh, with extraordinary levels of unemployment, a gravely reduced tax base, uh, huge numbers of businesses failed. People will wonder whether this was a proportionate response to what we faced. Thank you. And finally, Susan. So uh, I don't do prophecy. I think the um, business of philosophy, or one of the businesses of philosophy, is to think about possibility that may not be obvious to everyone because we all tend to get stuck in our own, you know, national and and uh, uh, disciplinary set of assumptions about the world. Um, I think those six months will be enough to know which way we took, whether we decided to take advantage of the crisis and to move in the direction that I was hinting um, earlier on, that we actually come up with a more just society, that the, the injustice and inequality has become so evident that all the things we wanted to deny, you know, or wanted to repress are impossible to repress. So that's one way we could go. We could, of course, go exactly the opposite direction. I, but I would like to end, end by emphasizing that it's entirely open. The Great Depression of the 30s, which um, we're now about to have a repeat of, um, ended in two very different ways, in two very different countries. In Germany, where I now live, uh, it was a huge force in uh, the rise of the Nazi party. In the United States, where I'm from, it led to the closest thing to a social democracy that the United States ever had. So it's not determined. It really depends on what we decide to do over the next six months. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you all. Um, if, uh, this debate, I mean, this debate has been um, passionate and it has been serious. And I thank you all for your um, contributions. I mean, one thing that it's made me think is just how integral it is to have science and facts and the knowledge of death rates how integral those, um, those features are to moral philosophy, that we can't separate um, those two things out. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.